Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Chris Martin is the COO and co-founder of Mighty Hive, the programmatic solutions partner. Chris continues a 14-year track record of building and leading successful operations and client services organizations across digital advertising and marketing companies, including his long tenure at Yahoo. At Mighty Hive, Chris is responsible for day-to-day operations at one of the world's largest and fastest-growing buyers of programmatic advertising. His unique talent and expertise help Mighty Hive partners develop expertise, drive efficiency in their marketing organizations, and gain the most out of their engagements with Mighty Hive. A respected leader in finance and accounting, Chris previously held executive positions at Yahoo, including chief of staff to the controllership, overseeing the company's $6 billion P&L, and director of target operating, sorry, targeting operations for Yahoo's $200 million dynamic creative and audience targeting ad products. He received his BS in computer engineering from Lehigh University and his MBA from the Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania. So you're one of the dumb guys out there. The MBA, an MBA from Wharton, that is, um, that's not an easy one to pull up. How'd you, how long did you, um, or I guess, what did you benefit most out of your MBA program that you still carry with you today? Because I'm not one of those um, guys. Uh, yeah, and I'm, um, I'm definitely of the school of thought that um, uh, education comes from many different sources. Um, I actually never thought that I was going to be a, an MBA candidate at some point in my future. Um, I was a uh, scrappy young lad. Oh, and first of all, thank you very much for the time and inviting me. Um, we're just jumping right into uh, to a little bit about myself. I apologize. Um, uh, you know, I was considered myself a, a relatively uh, scrappy upstart, and, and I was going to be able to you know, take the world by the horns without uh, any of the traditional methods of, of uh, you know, advancing one's career. Uh, and when the opportunity for an MBA from Wharton was even a consideration, uh, I think it was at Yahoo at the time. Uh, and you know, in, in your introduction, you mentioned um, you know, chief of staff at Yahoo's controllership. Um, I'm an electrical engineer and computer scientist by education. Um, and I really always thought I was going to, to start my own company and, and build my own uh, services and deployments. And um, it turns out that I'm, I'm actually a terrible engineer. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I understand how to code. Um, you know, uh, wrote a couple assembly language instruction sets for CPUs and processors in, in college. Um, and so life takes its, its turns when you really um, think about what you really want out of life and what you're actually good at and what you become passionate about. Um, I find myself um, constantly drawn towards building new things and, and helping others become unlocked in an organization. And when I was at Yahoo, I looked at my career there and I realized it had a, it had a ceiling. You know, I was never going to be the controller of Yahoo. I was never going to move beyond the roles that I had taken at the company and be able to escalate um, past it without going back and getting some formal education or, mm. or putting that credential on the resume. Sure. So when I researched programs, it's actually kind of an interesting story. Um, Yahoo, of course, would reimburse for uh, education, um, you know, $3,000, $5,000 a year for online courses, things like that. So I, I took a few University of Phoenix courses. You know, it was the first thing that popped up in the search results. Yeah. Um, and, and I discovered that, um, yeah, I can read these books myself. I don't really need that much structure. Um, and then so I dug a little bit deeper and, okay, how can I, how can I actually get formal education in the areas of accounting and finance, not, not where my trade was from, engineering, 
Um, and you know, lo and behold, this part-time program at uh, at um, uh, Wharton popped up. It's an executive program um, that's specifically designed. It's a full program, full curriculum. You know, they fly you out to their their centers in in uh, California and in, in Philadelphia, and um, and you go through the full MBA program with folks who are a little bit more seasoned, um, sort yeah. of mid-career, late twenties, early thirties, um, and it's usually people who just want to change their uh, career path. They want to accelerate. Um, they've got enough experience. They kind of know what they're doing. And, um, I thought the program was amazing. Um, and a, uh, my co-founder Pete Kim at Mighty Hive, um, also, you know, worked at Google and Yahoo. Uh, and that's where he, he and I met at Yahoo. Uh, he went to Wharton full-time program. Wow. Uh, and so he helped me, uh, navigate the, um, the process, um, uh, figure out how to help Yahoo subsidize and pay for it. Um, and then, uh, ultimately he helps write a recommendation. Um, for me to get into the program. Uh, so I went to the West Coast program, uh, got the MBA, um, handled the migration into M&A at Yahoo at the same time that I was doing this MBA program wow. um, and was able to manage both as well as manage my personal life. My, uh, my wife and I had been living together for some time, or my then girlfriend, and um, uh, I was able to sort of navigate all three worlds at the same time and eventually put the MBA on the resume without, uh, without sacrificing the career trajectory. So, um, yeah, it was a good thing for me to do, um, but not for everybody. I'm definitely a big fan of people who uh, can self-motivate and self-learn. Um, and the internet pioneers and the folks who never had for, uh, uh, formal education, um, I'm definitely down with uh, that approach to life and professional development. Uh, thanks for the question. Sorry to no, you're welcome. overwind it. And as you said, we did kind of jump right in. So welcome to the Second in Command podcast. I, um, I'm just kind of always enamored with people who have – been able to grasp that brass ring. I, I don't think I could have spelled Wharton when I was in high school. So I was not the guy who was going to be able to, to ever get into those programs. And I always love to listen to the stories, especially when they are kind of what you've done as well, where you didn't just leave an undergrad and go into an MBA because it was the next step. You you kind of left career to go back into it very intentionally. And, and I think that's where you get some huge, huge leverage from that. Um, I'm curious as to how you and your partner then decided to go out and, and leave you know, big internet companies or technology companies and, and go into the, uh, the startup space and then how you've made that transition. Um, excellent question. And a fun one too. Um, mm -hmm. Peter Kim co-founder at Mighty Hive and I met at Yahoo, as we already talked about, uh, we were on the shuttle bus that runs from Silicon Valley to San Francisco together. And there'd be three buses and, you know, let's say one third of the time we'd accidentally be on the same bus. And uh, for a number of months, uh, he would be the loud guy on the other side of the bus, always talking on the phone, doing business development deals, larger than life character. And everybody else who was trying to watch their Netflix videos or read accounting books like me um, was trying to ignore him as best as possible. Um, and so, you know, you're already getting a glimpse into how he and I work together. He is the type A outgoing social network builder, um, resume, politic navigator. Um, he is the, one of the most amazing and um, inspirational business development leaders that I could ever possibly have hoped to have been partnered with. And then I, on the other side of the foil, um, introverted, um, uh, take implicit satisfaction to the work and the deliverables that I provide, um, take myself very seriously, but at the same time realize this should be fun to do. Um, and the two of us together, uh, are a very interesting dynamic. And so Pete's on a call one day sitting across from me on this bus um, going up and down from Silicon Valley. And uh, he, he ends his call early 
And then he just looks at me and you can tell all he wants to do is talk to me. And all I want to do is crawl further into my book. And um, eventually he does it and he goes, so what you reading? (laughs) And and I'm like, ah, I'm reading my, my accounting book. Um, And I gave him my quick backstory versus some of the one that I just gave you about me. And he said, you know what? You sound like a perfect candidate for Wharton. I'm like, okay, I just, I've known you for eight seconds. Um, sure. Tell me about Wharton. And uh, oddly enough, that's how Pete and I met. And um, over the next couple of months, we actually became relatively good friends. Um, we uh, consistently talked about our entrepreneurial background, where he and I both have started our own businesses. Uh, we've both, both been scrappy upstarters. Um, he took a very different approach to building business than I did. Um, you know, I took a very independent contributor. Um, buy small residential properties, start small franchises. Um, you know, I always wanted to sort of own and, and, and build everything on my own and I didn't need to rely on other people to do it. Pete, on the other hand, goes out and builds a network of people to do the work for him, which is an amazing talent. And so the two of us together, when you think about the grand scheme of how you build businesses, um, are an amazing yin and yang. Um, that is the words uh, he goes out and builds the Go ahead. That was the word you would use. Yeah, I, I had just written down yin and yang to ask about it, but keep going because I'll I'll dive in later. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, and I know one of your themes here is also you know second in command, which I I firmly don't believe in. I think there's two commanders. You need a night watch and a day watch, or a, a mm-hmm. mom and a dad, or however you work on it. Uh, yeah. It takes a village, and um, you know I think he and I have found this natural um, fill-in where there's a uh, mutual exclusion event going on where he and I just automatically know what the other is going to be better at. And because we're honest with ourselves about it and we have such an open relationship and discussing it in a, um, you know, an open and honest way, uh, we're able to very quickly navigate any business decision, even if we're not physically next to each other. Um, you know, I work in Sydney, Australia primarily right now, uh, and I fly back and forth to the U S and Europe, um, trying to build this global business. Pete does the exact same things and we're rarely in the same place at the same time. Wow. Yet the business is still successful and growing because we have this innate ability to be able to communicate with each other, even though we're just totally polar opposite people. But we do have the same love and interest for entrepreneurial business and building something new in your own way that nobody's ever done before. So that's what excites us and, and kind of brings cool. us together, um, even though we have such um, uh, differing approaches to solve the same problems. Can you, can you give us in layman's terms what it is exactly that Mighty Hive does? Just because I know I read kind of the, the um, intro off the top, but give us a little bit more clarity around it. You know, Cameron, if I could do that, I would be a billionaire. Um, the, the digital marketing industry uh, or even the marketing and advertising industry is such a um, complex place to navigate. It's, it's just the wild west uh, when it comes to modern day industry. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think our company is relatively successful because we're able to navigate that, um, that, that wild west. Um, so that's to set the stage to the complexity, but I'll do my best to normalize it and make it simple to everybody. Um, billions of people surf the internet every day. It is a very large channel for marketers to be able to reach consumers. Classically, you would have newspapers or print or uh, television or radio, which would be a one-to-many discussion. You would, as a brand, try and get your brand message out to as many people as you can and economically, uh, and then you would try and tailor that message to very broad audiences, um, females, males, residents of this country, people in this zip code, 
Uh, and the challenge with that is that, you know, 90% of your advertising is just totally wasted. Um, you know, if you spend a dollar on, on the media to reach those people, 90% of it just burns and goes out the window right away. And that's because those people will never buy your product. Uh, and there's a spectrum to this conversation as well. Coca-Cola is something, you know, very different than a, um, you know, somebody who's selling very specific widgets or services. Uh, and so our industry in general, because of this digital transformation or this, this digital uprise has become incredibly fragmented, um, but individualized at the same time. I can reach out to somebody with an email, an individual person with a specific tailored message very easily. But that's very difficult to do when somebody's just browsing the internet, um, going from one website to another. How do you put a specific ad in front of a specific person in the same way that I would send them a piece of mail or a direct email, et cetera? And so over the years, the industry has fragmented into all these different ways to communicate and talk with people, and it's become relatively unwieldy for the market to navigate. It used to be you'd go out you know, at the beginning of the year and talk with one newspaper or one uh, magazine and you'd say, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a certain placement over this year. Let's, let's finish up dinners and drinks and then uh, we'll send you a check for a couple million bucks. And um, that's the way you used to do it. But now in the digital world, you have all these different opportunities and real-time opportunities to send one message to one person in one channel and you need to make that decision in a microsecond. You need to be able to set up rules and mechanisms to be able to manage that communication. Um, and this is where Muddy High starts to see the industry going. Enterprise platforms or large-scale services platforms that can handle all of this decision-making and aggregate all this data, bring all these what we call customer journey touch points um, into a centralized place for processing. Um, and this just unlocks an enormous amount of opportunity but also a normal, uh, an enormous amount of complexity and pitfalls uh, and systems integration and people and training problems. Uh, and our business has grown up on this chaos. We are the, um, the leading consultants uh, or the, the experts in implementing these large-scale platforms, and there's multiple platforms that you can uh, choose from, to try and consolidate and centralize effectively a, a, an enterprise re- resource planning tool like an Oracle and SAP to accountants or supply chain people for marketers. We're trying wow. to build this ERP for marketers. Wow. Um, and that's, that's what we're solving for the industry. Um, and it's, uh, it's becoming a bigger and bigger business. So that's where we're growing up. We are a consultancy and an execution arm for marketers that need to bring systems, data, and people all together to navigate digital transformation and marketing. That's what we do. Very difficult to define to somebody who's not in the industry. Yeah, but that's like so fairly complicated for sure for, for a layman. That makes sense. You're, you're not meant for us to even understand, are you? Um, talk, talk about building well, and running. Rem- I guess you're not really remote organizations, but you're running into a couple different countries. Do you have teams all over the world or are you mostly in a few geographic areas? And how do you, how do you manage remotely, both even with you and your partner and then just across the organization? We are global and we have people in every market, and that is our preference. Um, when you talk about marketing, people are individually different, regionally different, different by many different dimensions. So having local expertise in marketing is absolutely critical. Uh, I can guarantee you a message designed for the United States will not work in Russia, will not work in uh, good chunks of Europe, and you need to change and tailor your messaging and marketing and approach to each region. So you have to have people on the ground, you know, fighting the good fight in each market. We are firm believers of this. The challenge, though, for us is that a 
economies of scale, market by market, are conflicting interests. You need to have specialization, but you also want to take advantage of economy of scale. You need to have centralized systems, or you want to anyway. You need to have centralized data assets. You need to have centralized methodologies, roll-up, reporting, uh, branding standards. Mm. Sometimes that's very difficult to navigate when you're changing your message and your product perception region by region, market by market, zip code by zip code, and person by person. So for us, navigating the, the localization or personalization of marketing platforms is the challenge and the opportunity. We try and make that a lot easier for our clients to navigate. How does the center of excellence or the, you know, the brand marketer or the global deployment expert um, propagate their global standards and allow for the local markets to do what they do best? Well, the way we look at it is, okay, you need a standardized global solution that your individualized markets can all jump on. But it's not just technology. It's training. It's localization. It's the platforms. It's the systems integration. It's the legal navigation. Uh, we've got a big challenge in our industry around moving data country to country. These are all things that you could build internally and try and start from scratch, but you'll find very quickly that there's economies of scale from external services providers, outsourced um, systems and vendors that can help make this a lot easier for your marketing department to navigate. And that's the space where we play. So your second uh, part of the question was, um, how do we approach a global company? Yeah. Uh, and how do we make sure that Mighty Hive services are, are harmonized and standardized all the way from the C-suite down to the implementation level? Mm -hmm. um, and really, honestly, the way that we do it is we promote global uh, mobility for resources. We make sure that travel and um, visas and the ability to work in different countries and allow for cross-pollination consistently. Boom, we take care of our people first. Second, we move into systems and um, uh, digital communication, both real-time and non-real-time. We centralized on Slack. We create global channels for clients. We make sure that everybody who is touching a client globally can see what's going on, um, where they're allowed to see it. Um, and then finally, we try and centralize all the, the standards and systems that support account operations, um, like billing, contracting, um, all the the other sort of tangential services that go into primary business, we make sure that those are harmonized uh, appropriately. So we, be, we create this infrastructure where everybody surrounds the client, and everybody knows what's going on globally. So we can actually help our clients communicate within their own organization. Sometimes they use us to communicate internationally um, to other parts of the world because we actually have a better infrastructure for global asset deployment, uh, global communications, uh, et cetera. Um, and this is part of the onboarding process. People come into Mighty Hive and they learn about these fundamental concepts, exactly what we're talking about now. And we make sure we get them right away. We implicitly drill into them the concept of global communication, coordination, and that is part of the service we provide to our clients. And if you make that number one in everyone's head, then any of the local decisions that they make hopefully will piggyback on that general theme, which hopefully downstream makes us a better uh, services organization for our clients globally. Totally makes sense. Were, the, were there any systems that you pulled from Yahoo that you guys use today without kind of giving away any of the systems, but were there any things that best practices you guys did at Yahoo that you still do today? And were there any that you, um, you know, totally just left at Yahoo and said, we would never do that? Yes. And yes. You know, you, you learn things from big organizations and you learn uh, what not to do from big organizations organizations. Yeah. Um, but it's important to see that story arc because what you might do as a startup 
is perfectly acceptable and in fact gives you a competitive advantage in the life cycle of your company right up front, uh, that might be different what you start with than what you end with. But understanding that full arc of how you slowly tr transform the business over time as you continue to grow and have different needs and really you're solving for different things, if you don't understand that growth trajectory and that arc and you don't have it planned out or at least thought about from the very beginning, then you're already sort of hamstringing yourself into getting quagmired in myopic processes and things that aren't flexible and can't change. So, talk about um, that. so how, managing to tell me about that growth arc and how you guys have actually planned out the future and how you're working towards that. Walk us through that. Uh, sure. So like planning in like, general, it sounded like you say you're very clear on what the future looks like. So you're always working towards that. Well, we like to think so, uh, but the future is always changing. That's what's, that's what's cool about the future. Um, the story arc. So big companies generally need to have scaled, persisted policies, procedures, solutions, um, because people change over time. Mm. You know, the, the, the thing, uh, thing about big companies is that you hire thousands of resources and you have to train them to do specific tasks. And then the second that resource walks out the door, you need to have a way to replace that person one way or the other. Um, when you're a small startup, generally the turnover is smaller um, and you have a lot of people that build up tribal knowledge and process and can work together. And so in the beginning, setting up a huge ticketing system or building policies and procedures is almost too early. Right. You don't want to constrict your growth by institutionalizing things that can't be changed. And that causes a little chaos and a little confusion and new people being added to the mix need to be culturally indoctrinated to your little tribal village. But over time, you have to start centralizing because humans just physically can't scale. We haven't solved that augmented, you know, artificial intelligence into the brain thing yet. So if you can't scale people, you have to scale systems and, and processes. Uh, and I would say that there's certain milestones in companies' life cycles where, you know, you, you, you needed to be robust and testing and figuring out your perfect product market fit. Um, and then you figure out your perfect product market fit and the customer subset you want to go after. And then boom, you enter milestone number two, where you need to put in some, some light scaling mechanisms. Um, well, and that might be a, a central ticketing system or oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think what you're, what you're saying here is would probably be more true for some of the big companies that the systems that you're trying to perfect right now in the early stages in a year, you're going to have to fix them because whatever you're anticipating being perfect now is going to change. The environment changes, the needs change, the economy changes, the people change that. So there's, there's almost no point in creating the perfect system because perfect is going to change. Correct. Um, the assumption during your company's growth um, arc, you know, story arc should be that infrastructure and systems and process change will be the only consistency. And I don't even like to use the word fix because that's often what people do when they come into an, a growing organization. They come in and say, wait, I've seen this process done before, or I want to fix it because it's not being done right here. But the, what they don't realize is that it was being done right for that snapshot in time for the company. Right, exactly. And there's a lot of people who have built that process and who love it and needed to do it at the time and understand why it's there. And then the new people need to be indoctrinated into why the history of why that was done that way. And then they can slowly start the story to move oh. it into the next phase. And so I see a lot of that in fast growth companies where the new folks come in and the new, new sheriffs in town and then the, the, the company antibodies from the original startup come in and try and eat the new people who are trying to make change uh, because the new people don't get it 
And the new people come in looking at this crazy startup going, wow, wow these folks have no idea what they're doing. Um, so that's one of our biggest challenges in this story arc that I'm talking about, understanding how companies need to be um, more organic and adaptable to change in the beginning. And then slowly over time, once you've found your product market fit, once you start the, having the scale meets, you introduce these policies, procedures, and more rigidity. Um, and that's a, it's, it's a tough concept to really get wrap your head around unless you've seen it a couple of times. Yeah. My guess is that you guys in building um, the company just have learned a fair bit in terms of the entrepreneurial world related to people that you probably didn't see at Yahoo in terms of the, the recruiting, interviewing, selecting, and onboarding. It's probably very different from working in a big company. Can you walk us through some of what you learned and what you guys would now see as best practices you use internally? Yeah, that's a, you're going right to the heart of the matter, aren't you? Um, that is a complex problem. Um, who do you hire in the beginning of a story arc and who do you hire in the middle and who do you hire, you know, in the, we'll, we'll call it the plateau. Um, in the beginning, my preference, and remember I'm, I'm in a services industry, um, and we'll call it knowledge-based services industry. So advanced topics, um, you know, math, science, systems, platforms, um, you know, so not services, um, uh, you know, we, we need college uh, education, we need MBAs, we need self-starters um, who are able to navigate some pretty complex new and undefined areas, potentially without even the, the education. So in our industry specifically, we hire very adaptable, bright, entrepreneurial um, personalities that take implicit satisfaction in the work that they're doing. You know, they're not ladder, ladder climbing, they're not looking for other political means, but they can they can get excited about the and ambiguity of starting something new and really take a passionate hold of it. They, they want to come on board. They, they like the idea of a new company. They love the fact that it's not unstructured or that it's unstructured. Uh, and we really look for that, that type of talent. Then you move into your mid, you know, your, your, um, your, you found your product market fit. You're, you're ready to start scaling things. And then you need to bring in some different resources, not folks who are raw talent, um, um, but in some cases, like the extreme experts, like, okay, we've built this new analytics widget. Now we're going to bring in some, some folks who have done this before in a similar circle. We're going to teach them about the new way of doing things that we think we've disrupted or found a new way of doing it. And then we're going to let them figure out how to insert that into the rest of the marketplace. And that helps you scale. And then the third step for Plateau is you bring in people who can operate in, at a lower cost, at more efficient cost, um, and, and, and help persist the scale that you've already achieved in phase two. So in the beginning, it's super adaptable people. In the middle, it's the hyper experts that already know the industry. And in plateau three, uh, you start focusing on the maximization of profits um, or the, uh, the broader scale or the, you know, the, the, the folks who, who can handle um, um, grinding it out or, or, or coming into work every day. Um, and so those are, those are tough conversations to have um, as you're growing and scaling a company, but you have to realize the talent mix will definitely shift over time. Um, and plateau phase number three, then you get into the longer term com you know, conversations around, well, how do we become nimble and adapt? How do we change our, our products? How do we cannibalize our own revenue streams? Um, and that's a totally different conversation, which you know, we're not thinking about quite yet. We'll be happy with plateau mm -hmm. for now, and we'll solve for the continuous adapt adaption once we know we're successful. Yeah. Tell me, um, tell me about the, the whole area of growing people. 
I've always believed that a leader's job is to grow people. And the more that we really obsess about growing our employees and growing their skill set, the faster the company is going to scale. One of my clients that I've been coaching uh, for the last 14 months, I was talking to a CFO the other day and I asked what their budget was for employee training on a per person basis. And she said, well, we don't have one. I'm like, no, you need to have a, a budget for that. And she goes, no, no. What I meant was we have no cap on it. He's willing to spend however much we spend. I'm like, you're kidding, right? Um, they were about a $24 million company last year. They spent a million dollars on employee development and training programs, coaching programs, sending them to courses. Uh, they'll do 40 million this year from 24 to 40. They're absolutely on fire. But do you guys have any systems, programs, thoughts related to growing people or to, to growing the skill set of people? That's probably yes. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Um, we very much, uh, so I just brought you through the, brought you through the three phases. Yeah. Uh, I believe that Mighty Hive is sort of at the end of phase two right now. Um, uh, in the general scheme of things, you got about 250 people worldwide. Um, we're going to be somewhere between 400, 450 in our own, own organization by next year. Um, so massive scale. So we're definitely at the end of phase two, moving into phase three. Um, for this specific um, investment in people question, mm-hmm. We do like to bring in, you know, at least in phase one and phase two, a cross section of raw talent that wants to further their careers. You need to have that hunger, there you go. You need, right? And you, and and you need to provide them that that vision. What is it that taking this job with our company is going to propel this individual into the next phase of their career or the next phase of their personal life and development? Uh, and at Mighty High, we call it the Mighty Resume process. Um, even during the uh, interview process where you interview, I think up to 10, maybe even 15 people before you even are, are given an offer at Mighty Hive. We do this cultural evaluation consistently and thematically throughout the interviews to learn more and more about you and what motivates you. What, what are your passions? What's really going to, what are you going to consider success? Why are you going to wake up at 6am every morning, hit the gym and then come into Mighty Hive bright eyed and bushy tailed um, and then work until four in the morning? Not because we ask you to, but because you implicitly want to, because you know that your personal goals are aligned perfectly with the strategic and implementation goals of Mighty Hive. So we had this big discussion up front, and then we, we instantiated in something called the Mighty Resume process. And we build out your resume over X number of years, and we look forward to the future, and we say, all right, where, where are you going to be when you retire? Where, what do you want to do over the next 20, 30 years? And we try and back into the steps that you need to take today in order to get you to that long-term goal. Awesome. And what that does is, first and foremost, it allows for the elephant in the room of you know uh, misaligned incentives between the employer and employee to be just completely removed. Um, the the elephant is now squarely there, and we're talking about the elephant. Um, what is it that you want to get us? Is it an MBA? Is it a or you know subsidy for continuing education? Is it um, you know you want to become an independent contributor and a a research and development scientist? Is it you want to manage a team of people? Um, is it you want to be the executive uh, of a big Fortune 100 company? Uh, is it that you want to be entrepreneurial and start your own? Is it that you just want a ton of cash and you want to retire in five years? It almost doesn't matter because right. no matter what, the conversation alone is going to help you further your goal, whether or not it's with Mighty Hive or not. Well, I love, that we, actually, I love that you're actually connecting it with their core purpose, with their future, with what matters to them. And then 
that kind of lines them up with why they're going to do it versus just to do better in their job or because the company says so, right? And this, the second part is I think you're also starting with hiring the right people that want that are self-driven learners that already want to grow in their career. I think that's key because you can't you can't force somebody to learn if they don't want to. And that's exactly it. You've got to find um, you've got to find what motivates the person, and then you try and layer in the education and the career advancement and the value to your own company at the same time. And, so, you know, and that can be a tricky thing to do. But one of the first things you need to do is break down the artificial barrier of um, somehow imagining that this person is going to join your company and be there forever at the same salary. Ridiculous. Yeah, so is. let's just get it out of the way right away. What well, do you want to do? Where do you want to be? It's also not even necessarily enviable. Like, do you really want somebody to stay with your company for that long? Right? And, unless they've absolutely continued to scale with the company. Um, it's often not even the best solution. And yeah, you're right. The reality is it's probably not going to happen. So why set ourselves up for failure and be frustrated? Let's just help them get the most out of the company while they're with us and then move on in the best way as well and be raving fans when they do leave. And so half of my conversations these days when I'm talking about organizational building is what are you doing in two years? Because I'm going to fire you. Um, you, just should, you should plan on perfecting whatever it is you're going to do today within a 24-month span and because our industry is moving so fast and we're growing, we sort of had the luxury of being able to say asinine things like this. You're going to change job in two years. What is it going to be? And how do we get you there? And what do we do between now and then? So sometimes it's education. So, so we invest in subsidizing, furthering education outside of Mighty Hive. Sometimes we internalize it and create education series inside of the company, um, whether it be leisure, um, uh, leadership and development nights, whether it be access to C-suite and sort of sitting in on, on senior level conversations for that executive grooming sort of track. Um, we try and provide accessibility. You know, mm. kid, younger generations, they, they're hungry for information because they grew up with the internet. They can get it on, at the tip of their fingers. So how, does, how do you as a manager respond to that type of want or desire? How do you give them that vision? How do you hand it to them on a silver platter and say, hey, you've got a future ahead of you. It may or may not be here. Let's invest in your future regardless of whether or not it's here and just assume that if you want that longer vision, it will be perfectly aligned while you're here with yeah. what we need to do. Yep, and then, and then I don't worry about them coming in at 6am. I know they're going to do it because it furthers their interests and goals and it's perfectly yeah. aligned with ours. And then I don't need proactive management. I need passive management and that reduces overhead tax on managers uh, and allows for flexibility to the organization. I have people coming to me and saying, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving in six months, a year, two years. I want to go to this MBA program. Um, I want to, I want to travel the world and we have that open and honest discussion. And then I don't have two weeks notice problems. I have six months to hire a replacement or better yet groom replacement internally and allow for proper succession planning. Yeah. And then, they, and then everybody gets results for the period that they're there as well. It's perfect. Tell me, tell me about it, the merger that you guys had with us for first off, was it a merger? Was it an acquisition? And then second, how has it gone? And what are the big lessons you've learned through going through it? Oh, that is a real-time question. Um, so uh, for context for everybody on the, on the, who's listening in, uh, Mighty Hive, um, you know, about 200 people, um, uh, 25 million net revenue last year. Uh, this year um, just closed about, uh, well, actually, I can't talk about that yet, um, but uh, growing rapidly. And um, we um, came to a decision probably about six months, nine months ago now, um, that in order to scale our product market fit very quickly, we needed to go out and get uh, funding. We needed, we needed to be able to pay for um, our expansion efforts. 
And that led us to the conclusion, all right, we'll go, we'll go talk to some bankers and, and we'll talk about expansion. And um, a myriad of opportunities opened up because of that process. You know, we, we thought we were just going to go out and recapitalize and, and either borrow or, or find a different set of investors, whatever it was. Um, and what ended up happening is that the entire market exploded and said, wow, we need what you guys have. Um, we want in. And we started talking with a whole bunch of much larger companies or same size companies that wanted to merge, et cetera, in this, um, what we call the growth capital process. And um, what we came to conclude was if we're in phase two, much like the earlier part of our conversation, mm -hmm. uh, and we need to find some existing industry experts to help scale our brand new thing, maybe this company S4 Capital uh, which is which is led up by um, Sir Martin Sorrell, who is of course the ex-chairman and and of uh, WPP, you know, a very large industry player in our space. He's starting something brand new. He's got all the existing connections in the industry. He can bring a lot of value and direction uh, to our our small, nimble little startup here. And it just so happens that he's combined with a um, a tangential uh, service offering. Um, uh, called Media Monks, an uh, uh, integrated marketing uh, services provider. They do a lot of creative and, and um, uh, creative development in the marketing space globally. And we said, wow, that is an asset that we need uh, to you know, expand our services capability for our clients, uh, both agencies and advertisers and brands alike. Um, uh, and it gives us access to public market capital. And it gives us industry connections where we can now introduce our new way of uh, integrated marketing solution um, development uh, and, and scale it to uh, potentially customers who've never even heard of our business model before. And all of it came um, ticked and tied in a pretty bow through this growth capital process. So we learned a lot about ourselves going through that process. Um, you know, we had to justify why our business model was good to, I, I think it was probably 50, 60 different entities. Um, we did a lot of internal research, the external questions and pressure was super valuable for us to really, you know, look at our business and redefine the way that we do things and explain it, et cetera. Um, and it gave us lots of market, um, uh, uh, understanding, um, like what was out there and what the opportunities were. And, um, eventually we selected S4 Capital, uh, went through the process. Uh, we closed on Christmas, um, uh, uh Christmas Eve, actually a ton of people working right through the holidays. Um, still exhausted from that uh, experience. Um, and now we're, we're part of this larger organization, I think 1,200 people globally, um, brand new um, uh, integrated go-to-market planning going on. Um, just a, a lovely experience end-to-end. -end. And it's really going to help us move into that phase three, uh, if you will, or that, that, that um, uh, end of phase two, really scale out our global solutions. Um, and having the ex uh, senior executive teams um, moving through a public company um, listing process. Um, all of that was incredibly informative, stressful, but exciting at the same time. You know, it's, it's a real milestone or a marker uh, and a validation in the business model that we've set up and the culture that we've built. Um, but we look at it as a milestone. Um, yeah, all of the management is still on board. Um, we're all incentivized to uh, make this thing succeed and grow 10x over the next couple of years here. Um, so very exciting time. Merger's been successful. Um, lots of articles on the internet if anybody's interested in reading about our story arc, uh, learning more about Sir Martin Sorrell or WPP, um, and sort of how that, that story arc happened. It's, um, you were right in the middle of that whole process as well. So how, how did you focus on the core business while you were going through that and not let it completely distract you? 
Mm, you, you don't. You physically can't. Um, or at least, you know, maybe in your next podcast, somebody would be like, yeah, you should have done this. Um, but I, I had three regions to cover. We were growing Europe, we're growing APAC, uh, growing United States, Americas, and LATAM, all at the same time as a burgeoning business, um, doubling year on year. We're, we're just fine. Positive cash flow, the whole works. And then you throw in this growth capital process, which was a full-time job in of itself along the other three full-time jobs. Um, the answer is that things dropped. You know, we didn't grow as fast in this region. This customer churned. Um, we weren't able to pay attention to operations. Right. What I did learn very quickly in the process is that you need to expand the subset of people that you trust within your own company to be able to manage it. Um, you've got to rely on others to be able to navigate some pretty tough conversations and do things that they're uncomfortable doing because you physically don't scale yourself. Uh, a founder-led company will, you know, it's very difficult to scale that. You yeah. need to have a strong team that you trust implicitly to be able to run with things, let them make mistakes because those mistakes are a lot less costly than, um, you know, what you have to give up by doing it all yourself. No, you've certainly, you've certainly gone through the evolution almost like we go as, as humans when we're like five years old, 15 years old, 25, 35, we're the same person, but we just continue to evolve. You guys are really evolving as a company. One, one final question. If you were to, to, um, have one great word of advice that you would have wished you'd known in the younger age, you know, something that a word of advice you could give yourself now, but you could give your 21 year old self starting out, what would it be? Uh, one word of advice. So if I'm talking to myself on the, the magical time phone, yeah. um, it's got a cord. I would, <laughs> it's got a, well, it would have to be on the other end. Unfortunately, that's dating myself a bit. Um, so my 20-year-old 20, 20 self, let's see here. I would say that optimizing your time. Yeah, the, the theory of concentric circles of life. Um, you've got, a, you've got a, a self, you have a professional career, and then you have um, family and, and sort of personal life, right? So you've got this trifecta of things that in general humans kind of need. They want to know they're adding value um, to, the, to the world. They want to know that they're adding value to themselves and they want to know that they, they've got a special place for, for people that mean a lot to them. In order to become incredibly efficient, 20-year-old Christopher Martin, you must bring all three together. Mm. You can't go to a nine-to-five job and then go to, to five to eight o'clock family and then on the weekends have a couple hours for yourself. You've got to mix the workouts with listening to podcasts. You've got to mix your commute with writing emails. You've got to go on vacations to countries where you're growing your company and bring your family with you. You have to create a family environment so your family can feel invested in your personal career and growth. And then you also need to take time for yourself, but hopefully that time for yourself includes making yourself better, listening to podcasts, um, you know, exercising, you know, keeping control of the, the body and, and um, mind and spirit. Um, and if you don't figure out how to do that early on and build up those important habits, you allow for the emergency of the day to slowly yep. erode your very strong base. Yep. So it's that, it's that, um, that every morning heuristic, that daily routine that helps you survive the global travel, the, the flights, the, um, the, the myriad of things that come up in today's modern society that can throw you a kilter. And, you got to focus on bringing those circles together to make your life more efficient 
and to make sure that you stay consistently um, moving it all forward together. And if you don't balance it all, then you start sacrificing one of them or it, two of them. Truly, of them. It truly, truly is so required as well. And we just under, you know, really underestimate it. And it's funny, one of the books that I, I wrote um, in the last 10 years was called The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. I co-authored it with Hal Elrod and, and we talked about the morning success habits that you need to actually kickstart your day and to get kind of life going in the right way. And I get teased at times for some of my morning rituals that I've really started to put in place over the last number of years. Um, and uh, one of the hard ones has been the cold shower, but man, that thing, just doing that after you finish your normal shower in the morning, 30 seconds to a minute of a cold shower, it certainly kickstarts you. Chris Martin. Yes, it does. Chris Martin, the COO from Mighty Hive and co-founder of Mighty Hive. Thanks very much for joining us on the Second in Command podcast. Really appreciate all the time and the insights you gave us and how you guys have scaled the company. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And to everybody on the podcast, uh, enjoy your morning, your routine, or whatever it is you're doing. And um, thanks so much for the time. Thanks very much, Ron. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.